Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where Whitney sings some of his favorite songs from Les Miserables. I was uh, singing uh, Master of the House as I traipsed in here this evening. Go on. Uh, no, thank you. I don't do that on mic. <laughs> that, that's the one, yes. The, the one that uh, they... Sasha Baron Cohen. The, the Sasha Baron Cohen like version of that is like... The, the least energetic version you're going to hear of that, like get any live stage recording of it and it'll be better. Got it. Noted. Somehow, uh, somehow in retrospect, it makes sense that Tom Hooper wasn't great at movie musicals. Um, like we, we, we let cats happen. Yeah. We, we could have stopped him. We could, yeah. we didn't have we had, to see his lame as but yeah. Detective, they gave us the clues. <laughs> this little <laughs> snowman thing. Look out for cats. <laughs> Dear Mr. Police, I made lame as My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic and uh, we're in a bit of a silly mood, aren't we? Yeah, we got a case of the sillies. Uh, and uh, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies this week on Critically Acclaimed, including... Uh, the new Netflix action movie Red Notice, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds. Uh, the latest drama from director Kenneth Branagh, which kind of rhymes with drama, Belfast. Uh, a new film from director Rebecca Hull, uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorite actors, making their uh, directorial, I think their feature directorial debut, uh, Passing, also on Netflix. Uh, the family film Clifford the Big Red Dog, which is about a big red dog named Clifford, and yeah. Home Sweet Home Alone, uh, which which is a thing that Disney did. That that that's what you can describe like everything. They're just sort of like pooping out there into the world. Mm-hmm. It's just something they did. I, they they had that big Disney Plus day when they just announced a whole slew of new projects mm-hmm. and. And it was just a press release. It, it was just a like, press release. It wasn't a was on day. It wasn't like a holiday or anything. They, it was just they, a big press release. That's what they did. They released yeah. a whole bunch of announcements, a couple of new trailers and things, and some of it was just glorious. They did like a whole thing where like, oh, we're going to show all the Marvel stuff in a 14-minute video you can only watch on Disney+. Plus. Mm. And I watched that thing. Over seven minutes of the 14-minute video was previews of TV shows that are already out. Oh, for like not even new like seasons. The, the new uh, Falcon series and yeah. the, no, the old Falcon series. Like they, it's not even oh. it's not even like next season. It's, it's just, just the, the season here's what just happened. Yeah, here's the trailer for a thing you watched a half a year ago. <laughs> like it was absolutely incredible. And then, but that's one of the things that they announced was, oh yeah, and we're doing a TV series based on the Spiderwick Chronicles. And I'm like, when did you get the rights to that? <laughs> when <laughs> does that this a, happen? Wasn't that a DreamWorks film? It was I don't a Paramount remember. thing. Okay. And apparently they got some sort of deal. Anyway, it's just, it's just at this point, Disney could just say, oh yeah, and we're totally... Uh, we own we're, Batman now. Yeah, yeah we, just whatever. Yeah, I would be like, oh, I guess I missed that press release. Mm. Is anyone shocked? <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't like sift through because I don't, Care. It's just a press release, sure. but uh, I I did hear like some information did manage to make its way to me through my through my bubble ah. and in, into my bubble, and uh, I, I it seems like it's all just rehashes of old stuff. Pretty much, like there, yeah. wa- there wasn't. There, here, a... Here's an interesting new concept mm-hmm. that we're introducing. There was none of that. Well, there it's was like we're gonna do Hocus Pocus Part Two. We're bringing yeah. them all back. Uh, was, we're gonna bring X Men co- cartoon again. We're there were a it all couple back. of things that weren't like. Just remakes or reboots, mm. but even those didn't look very inspired. There's one where the the title looked absurd, but the trailer actually kind of sold me on it. I think it was called Sneakerella, 
where mm-hmm. it was like Cinderella, but it's about someone who wants to break into the world of like designer sneakers. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And this I trailer did, did. had total step up vibes. Like it wasn't mm. a musical, but like it had that kind of energy. And I'm like, you know what? If you do that, I'm fine. This this sounds neat. Go with that. I mean, there's hundreds of Cinderella movies. So why yeah, not? But, uh, but but are there a lot of sneaker movies? The last time mm. Hollywood did a movie about sneakers, mm. it was one of the best movies ever made. It had Robert Redford, <laughs> Sidney Poitier, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Ben uh, Kingsley. It wasn't really about the shoe sneakers. Well, unfortunately. there's the that last... moment in the movie sneakers see, I'm, where I'm trying to think of the last like shoe centric movie. I've to be seen fair, it's not a Cinderella film. Th- I, when I was when I was young and I saw the movie Sneakers, I was like, "Why is this called Sneakers?" Mm. And there's a there's a line in the movie where Sneakers, by the way, is an amazing like spy thriller with like one of the best casts it's, ever assembled. It's, it's a hacking movie yeah. uh, about a, a a team of let's ragtag team who breaks into uh, secure places to test their security. Yeah. And they're hired to... And they to, get in, uh, involved in, es- like, yeah. post-Cold War espionage. Yeah, they're hired to do an espionage thing, and it goes really bad, and then they have to use their skills to get out of it. Like, again, you got Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, Ben Kingsley, David Strathairn... Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Aykroyd. Dan River Aykroyd. Phoenix. River Phoenix, for crying out loud. Like, it's an incredible cast. The screenplay is, like, damn near perfect. Absolutely phenomenal. When I was a kid, I was like, why is this called Sneakers? Because they sneak. The- you're ahead of me. All right. What I thought, having seen the movie several times, was there's a line in the movie where River Phoenix comes up to Robert Redford and said, hey, there's someone in the office that got a job for us. And Robert Redford asks him, shoes? Mm. And River Phoenix says, expensive. Mm. And I figured, oh, so those are the expensive shoe people, but our heroes, they're the sneakers. <laughs> they're just like working okay. class. So for me, I for years, I thought that's what it was. And then someone said, they sneak around. And I'm like, Oh, that's why they call the shoes sneakers. And I was in my twenties. <laughs> They're soft-soled shoes. Yeah, well, I don't actually as a, do as opposed a lot to of the hard, hard I don't do formal shoes. How many people? I'm like, I'm going to say ask right now. People at home. Mm. A lot of people wear sneakers, tennis shoes to some, soft-soled mm. shoes for running, sports, etc. Mm. Um, when was the last time you actually snuck around? Oh, I do it all the time. You actually like in your like you're on your tippy toes and you've got like your hands up like a T Rex, like bum 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 bum. When was the last time you did it? Are you really getting enough sneaking? Uh, uh, are you are you doing enough sneaking to justify your purchase of sneakers? That's what I want to know. Uh, my sneakers are clearly of low quality because one of them squeaks. See, those are squeakers. You got squeakers oh by my mistake. <laughs> We need to move on. We're reviewing some new movies here in Critically Acclaimed. Uh, and uh, this week, I, I would venture to say that the big release is at least the release that Netflix is pushing really hard. They spent $200 million on a heist movie starring Dwayne Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds. Admittedly, a pretty good movie star cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you see those names on a poster. Some, you're some like, of the biggest. Oh, someone spent some money on that. Some okay. of the biggest working right now. Certainly, and, and they're all involved in like big high high profile yeah. uh, like action series. Each every single one of them can headline a giant blockbuster. Yeah, and have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here they it's are like now. A, in, a, in a Ryan Reynolds free guy is mm-hmm. the highest grossing American film of the year. That's not based on anything. Pretty impressive. I think it's like the thirteenth highest grossing, but still, it's yeah the the, hi- the highest of that's still pretty good. He could the, he, the non adaptation. He helped sell that movie. I mm. think if with if it was just like if that was Jay Moore in that movie, it probably wouldn't have done as well. I think it's fair to yeah, say yeah. Ryan Reynolds was a bit of a draw there. So 
again, okay, these people have all been good in movies before. What have you got? Well, we got a new film from Rawson Thurber. The direct, the auteur behind Central Intelligence mm-hmm. and Skyscraper. Two movies I quite liked, for the Skyscraper's record. Skyscraper's okay. I, Skyscraper's a very fun diehard knockoff. My favorite bit about when that movie came out, it was like, oh, we've come around full circle. Skyscraper. It's diehard in a building. <laughs> because that's what it is. I think it was pretty a good, joke though. on The Simpsons ones. It's, yeah. it's speed in a building. Um, yeah. That was pretty good. Central Intelligence is actually quite witty and actually mm-hmm. has some real, like, character and emotion to it. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the one with uh, The Rock and Kevin Hart, and they actually have really, really good chemistry together. Uh, and I swear to God, I'm watching this movie, and I kept thinking, wow, Ryan Reynolds' part was probably written for Kevin Hart. <laughs> That's pro- this feels like a Kevin Hart role all well, over. So the premise is uh, Dwayne Johnson plays a, a super detective fed who is on the trail of a, a gentleman cat burglar, played by Ryan Reynolds, mm-hmm. who uh, is in it for the fun of the game. He wants to just steal things because it, he'd be famous if he stole those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, it turns out when uh, he finally does apprehend Ryan Reynolds and sends him to a, a Russian prison, uh, the feds that he's working with, fi- that uh, Dwayne Johnson's working with, find that his credentials had been forged and mm-hmm. that he is not actually a fed and he gets arrested and thrown in prison with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. He is accused of collaborating with Brian, with uh, Brian Reynolds, with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, he's got like millions of dollars in his bank account. It looks really, really bad. So he's thrown in prison with Ryan Reynolds. Cl- and, cl- clearly a frame job. Yeah. And uh, now, now they're in a position to have to break out together uh, to clear Dwayne Johnson's name and to complete the ultimate heist uh, because they're both being manipulated by the greatest thief in the world, the Carmen San Diego of this universe. The Bishop! Yes. She goes by the codename The Bishop. Which She's played we, by Gal Gadot. We, uh, I, I watched this with my wife, and we couldn't stop quoting the Monty Python sketch. The, the Bishop. Okay. <laughs> Whenever they said her name, we just said, The Bishop! <laughs> um, every single interaction between Dwayne Johnson... Ryan Reynolds mm. and Gal Gadot, whether they're all in the same room together or it's only two of them. Uh, the word I'm going to use is smug. There's uh, a smug yeah. sort of like, we're all here to have a good time. I, and I think, maybe not smug. I think cheeky might be a little bit more accurate. Cheeky would imply that I was having fun. Not necessarily. Smug implies, <laughs> for me, smug is this, this sort of thing where it's just like, ha ha. We got you. You clicked on the movie. Now you're going to have to watch me vamp for a while. And that's what I do it, a lot. It, it feels like uh, there is there is no chemistry at all between these three people, which is bizarre because these are pretty charming movie stars, all three of them. All three of them. Uh, and I use movie stars in that descriptive term and that they have that star quality, don't they? Well, you when you see a movie starring, especially Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds, but I think mm-hmm. Gal Gadot as well, uh, you're you're not expecting them to like immerse themselves in a completely new character the way like a Meryl Streep would. No. You're expecting them to play off of their beloved popular persona, exactly. which is what we want to see. Ryan mm-hmm. Reynolds has been making a living off of playing like the snappy comeback guy for over 10 years now. Dwayne Johnson is the charming hero and has been for about 20 mm-hmm. years. Gal Gadot is still, I think kind of coming into her persona and here she's trying to play a bit more of a femme fatale type character, but she's still got that godlike confidence that you expect mm. from a Wonder Woman or from her character in Fast and the Furious. Uh, 
they feel like they were filmed on separate sound stages and I, edited in together. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if that's the case. Their conversations don't even play off very naturally. They're such different kinds of actors mm-hmm. that they don't really let the the scenes sort of propel themselves forward the way it should in this sort of heist caper. Uh, and I've noticed this actually about Dwayne Johnson in general. He's a charming fellow, and you want to point a camera at him, but his charm rarely leaks into the film he's in. He is a self-contained little charm pod that never breaks out. And uh, He doesn't I, I was, need anyone else to be charming, but I think... Well, what know, he needs is a filmmaker who is able to extract that charm and pace the movie around it. You look at something uh, like Skyscraper is another example. Yeah, Same yeah. director, and he he's sort of this bland hero type. He doesn't have much of character in that one. Even something like Jungle Cruise, where he's supposed to be this sort of yeah. like uh, winking cad with a secret a secret about his past. Like Emily Blunt is doing all of the heavy lifting in that movie. Yeah. She's the one who's actually bringing a little bit of energy to it. And he thinks that he can just sort of coast. Coasting is all he knows how to do. It's worked once and it was when the film The Scorpion King. <laughs> because I think in the Scorpion King he wasn't like he wasn't trying yet like he was just he sort was, of he was kind of just doing his wrestling persona yeah, like he was just what, sort of what doing if, that what if the what if instead of the rock I went on stage as the Scorpion King and that was my vibe yeah and, yeah, and, and that was and, it, and this sort of like very charming sort, in that this film. sort of like silly sword and sandal film it, it yeah. kind of worked and it hasn't worked since I like the rock I like him a lot <laughs> I think he's been good in some things but I think what he, he, no he's fine the point is uh, with Red Notice it's really glaringly obvious well, how that needs to be wielded Responsibly. I think it needs to be. You say it needs to be wielded responsibly. I think it needs to be wielded winkingly. I think that when when a filmmaker uses The Rock's persona almost against him a little bit, that's when he's really really good. I think you look at the Jumanji films where his heroic, uh, you know, Superman kind of quality is then populated by a dweeby nerd. Mm-hmm. That's kind of funny. You look at him in this in Central Intelligence from the same director, where he's actually the one who's the most emotionally insecure, and he's very committed to that, and that really, really works. When he is asked to just put on the charm, mm-hmm. he gets less interesting. Yeah, I think, and I, I think there are other a lot of other actors who have this problem. Like they're just people. They want to turn people want to turn some actors into movie stars, but they're much more interesting. As character actors. I don't think that's true for Dwayne Johnson, but I think his main persona is just so specific mm-hmm. that just trying to rely on that is actually dull. Yeah. And so the, you need to do something clever. And, and I, here we're not doing that. And I feel that's the same with Ryan Reynolds. He's he's you know very sharp-witted. He can throw off a one-liner very well, but like somebody like a, a, a Jim Carrey or a Robin Williams, you're going to need somebody to direct all that energy somewhere. And mm-hmm. if you just sort of let him go, he's... Just, He's he's gonna like change personas too quickly, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And and Gal Gadot is not the kind of person to bring those two together and sort of form the unit. She's not leading the charge either. Well, I think it's I think there's a big there's a couple of really big problems here. I think pretty much everyone is also just miscast. Like you mm-hmm. talk about how they don't have chemistry together, but even beyond that, I think a lot of their characters don't really work. You described Ryan Reynolds as this sort of gentleman thief. He's not playing it that way at all. He's playing it like Deadpool. He's playing it like his character from the Hitman's Bodyguard. He's just a quipping quipster. I think I, I was watching this movie and I was like, you know what would have been great in this role 30 years ago? Kevin Klein. <laughs> someone who would bring a bit of the dashing, a bit of the, the heroic, but also someone who could totally lounge around in a tuxedo mm. and just be charming for 20 minutes. 
Yeah. Ryan Reynolds is desperately trying to fill the room. He's oh, trying yeah. to fill the air with dialogue constantly. That is not a gentleman thief. That is the comic relief guy, yeah, which is why it feels more like it was written more for yeah, Kevin Hart. You need like uh, uh, David Niven and Omar Sharif yeah. in this and Julie Christie. There you go. Yeah. And that's the other thing. And that's the other, and I think we noticed this in Jungle Cruise as well. While Dwayne The Rock Johnson is incredibly charming, you would absolutely want to spend time with him based on his persona in almost any movie. Hmm. I can't think of a single time he had romantic chemistry with anybody. No, it's like it's he, really rare. He's got he's good not dad good, vibes or yeah. maybe good married vibes, but if you want to smolder, he doesn't smolder. He, and he's there's this he's whole a, thing a with, little weirdly innocent for that. He, he's he's he comes across just kind of just not interested, and mm. that's fine. That's totally fine. But they keep trying to throw him in the situation where it's like, ah, how sexy is it that he's doing the tango with Gul Gadot? And I'm like, not really, honestly. <laughs> They seem like they play more like, and, they, and this is true with Emily Blunt as well. They played like friends or siblings, really, more than anything else. Mm. And as a result, when you're trying to make this movie sexy, it comes across as really disingenuous. It's so, like, this is what sexy. I feel like not just sexy, but every element of this film. This is what it would look like if it was. If. if you just sort of had a baseline reading. If you were giving yeah. it as an like a base flavorless example as to how something should look, yeah. Before you start making it, yeah. It, it reminded me of, uh, and I've talked about this before in other films, but like it reminded me of when you're watching a movie, usually sort of a broad movie, like a comedic movie or something mm. rather light, uh, and there's a character in the movie who is watching a fake movie. <laughs> They're not just watching like Night of the Living Dead on TV. They've shot yeah, a yeah. fake movie for this movie for like one scene. The best example of this ever is from the remake of Annie. Where they're watching a, Lake, yeah. yeah, they're watching a fake young adult movie about mermaids who live on the moon, starring Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher, called Moonquake Lake. Watch that clip online if you haven't. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, but when you're shooting the fake movie within a movie. The trick is it can't look like the movie you're watching. It's got to be a little faker than that. Yeah. Because the movie you're watching is already a little fake. So you don't want to confuse the two. You don't want to like get feel like you just cut to a real movie. And you don't want to... That's you definitely crazy. don't want to run the risk of making the audience wish they were watching that movie instead. It has to so, look fabricated and so on top yeah. of, So on top of looking fake, it's usually not good. Hmm. This is that movie, but we're watching the whole film. <laughs> if you were like, oh, I'm, like some behind the scenes Hollywood gag thing, like an adaptation two, mm. where like Nicolas Cage is like, oh, they asked me to write some this some, red notice, th- film, some man. some terrible sexy movie with Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot, and uh, uh, and The Rock, and then we just cut to Red Notice, and you'd normally see like the trailer or one scene, but this is such a weird like Michelle Gondry film that they just make us watch all of Red Notice, and then we come back to Nicolas Cage. That's what we're doing right here. Every single thing about this movie feels not just fake. I don't mind if things feel like, you know, artificial. That can be fun in a movie. They don't feel real. Yeah. They don't feel, I mean, I realize that that sounds ridiculous, but like, it's not, it's not fake. It's not real. It's like, no, it's, it doesn't feel like there's like a consistent reality to this world. This feels, this feels like everyone's just like putting on a show. And not in a way that's fun or sexy or entertaining. Mm-hmm. The action's pretty mediocre, honestly. Well, mediocre is exactly the way to, yeah. word to describe a movie like this. It is yeah. there's no no wit or creativity to it. 
Every single story beat is something you've seen before. The the story is not interesting to recount. Yeah. The characters aren't interesting enough to uh, sort of rise above the dullness of the story and of the action. Yeah. Uh, even the MacGuffins aren't interesting. Yeah, that's the three eggs of Cleopatra. You know what I'm talking about, right? Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, th- there are... Eggs. Yeah. Valuable Fabergé eggs. Fabergé eggs. They're gorgeous. You ever actually taken a look at all of them? Yeah. They're all I've, different and distinct. I've, and I've seen them in the Hermitage Ooh, in St. Petersburg. Um, yeah, yeah, they're cool. I've, I've traveled to Russia a couple times. Yeah, but... so like the idea of like getting like really fancy, like art- artistically crafted, mm. you know, engraved or jewel encrusted eggs as a gift is fine, but like it's this weird MacGuffin where it's like they act like it has some kind of cultural cachet. Like we're going to go like, Ooh, it's mm-hmm. like looking for Excalibur or looking for the Holy grail. And, uh, no, yeah. it's really feels really, fi- you know, you know what movie made that work? Like actually sold like the myth of the artifacts that we're looking for. Indiana Jones. Well, Indiana Jones is the obvious example, yeah. but I was going to say army of thieves. Oh, there you go. Those, those safes were, yeah, yeah they, were talked talked about so much and looked at a lot. Yeah, Army of Thieves, which is another Netflix heist movie that came out just a few weeks ago, was a prequel to the zombie movie Army of the Dead, and it is about a uh, a safe cracker who is enlisted to crack the world's most like uncrackable safes, and they were made by like <laughs> this like safe cracker like a hundred years ago, and they're shrouded in mystery. Mm. And that movie rules. That movie is exceptionally entertaining and is actually <laughs> sexy and is actually fun. And it's a little artificial as well, but in a really fun way that actually make, engages and pushes it forward. And I remember a lot of people talking when that movie came out. It's like, why is Netflix burying this movie? It's really fun. Uh-huh. It's a prequel to a film that they were very proud of earlier this year. And I think Red Notice is why. If I'm going to put on my yeah. conspiracy theory hat for a second. Uh-huh. Army of Thieves came out just a couple of weeks before Red Notice, but they spent $200 million on this one. On this one, getting one of the biggest casts assembled in any like non superhero movie this year. Mm. And Army of Thieves makes this look even worse. And Army of Thieves is the dashed off prequel to a zombie movie so if if if, like you put them side by side everyone's gonna think why did netflix waste their money on this crap that's what these kinds of light-hearted caper films ought to feel like however carefully constructed they might be they need to feel like they were dashed off yeah that's the great strength of something like ocean's 11 it is impeccably crafted which one are you Uh, talking about the uh the steven soderbergh film okay because the originals no that's that's incredibly loose the original film Um, to a fault i feel yeah uh no, the the Steven Soderbergh film, you can tell that he's re- carefully, really carefully put that together yeah. and you know cast and shot that film in just just so. Mm. But it at the end of the day, it feels very much like a trifle, like not a lot really happened. Right. They just sort of these lighthearted guys got away with it. Well, if you're gonna do a heist movie that isn't about like you know we have to steal something to save someone's life or mm. to inject money into some like important whatever like if there, if there aren't like serious stakes involved yeah uh if you're if, like art thieves those kinds of movies tend to be very frothy yeah um you can make great movies out of that and there's a lot of really really fun ultimately kind of trifling but sexy witty absolutely thoroughly entertaining movies in that vein and when I think of the movies that Red Notice is obviously trying to be a part of, at least in terms of a lineage, it's not actually mm. like paying homage to anything specifically. But when I think of like 
Top Copy or How to Steal a Million mm. or The Thomas Crown Affair, either of them. I actually prefer the remake, but they're so much better than this. They're so much more natural and charismatic mm. and this just feels so forced together. This is yeah. just this is like like I've got I've got Legos, I've got Duplos, and I've got Lincoln Logs. Mm. Let's make a heist movie out of this. Like I don't know <laughs> sure. how you're supposed to do it. So um it's a real bummer. And I before we move on, I just want to say, and on top of everything, this is not a problem everyone's gonna have. But you know when you 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 know something and then a movie gets it wrong and no one else in the audience knows it and they just sort of breeze by, mm. but you're pissed <laughs> because they didn't understand, I don't know, whatever your expertise is, dentistry, World mm. War II tanks, comic books, whatever whatever is your specific field of expertise. Red Notice doesn't know a goddamn thing about soap. <laughs> There's a plot point in Red Notice where they have to break out of a Russian prison. And the whole thing is, and it's preceded by they're they're in the showers, and Ryan Reynolds is talking about how, how great the glycerin soap is. Well, he's talking about how like these Russian prisons are are not very good, according to Ryan Reynolds. I've never been in one; I can't say for certain. Uh, but he says, but the good thing is the soap is great because it doesn't have any of those like additives that like a lot of like it actually it's he says it's pure glycerin, hmm. and then he ends up using the pure glycerin and to combining make- it with nitrous acid with nitrous acid to create nitroglycerin to create an explosion that helps them escape. It, Sounds it's, good on paper. It's, it's it's clearly not scientifically based whatsoever. Yeah. It's just a, a little plot that that doesn't bother me. It does. It normally wouldn't bother me, but right. here's here's what bothers me. No soap is pure glycerin. <laughs> glycerin is not soap. Glycerin is in soap. Glycerin, I think glycol it, is actually a byproduct of yeah. soap, and a lot of soaps have a lot of glycerin in it because it's actually really good for your skin. But also, a lot of soap companies I, will try to skim off the glycerin and use it in lotion products so that the soap will dehydrate you, and then the lotion will hydrate you again, and they get to sell you two products for the price of one. Hey, hey. that's a trick. Don't fall for it. Uh, but I'm watching this, and I'm like, there is no such thing as an all glycerin soap. There would be I don't no think cleaning he meant property it was in literally that. Literally all glycerin, but that it wouldn't work. Hmm. He literally says pure glycerin. He says it in two separate scenes. Yeah, that's not a thing. So I'm going to say that right now. Uh, that is some bullshit. Fine. You want some real soap? You had it over to Salt Cat Soap, our Etsy store. Hmm. I run by uh, myself and M. Lapis da Silva. We make and design our own soaps, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they got glycerin in them, but they're also real soaps. I, there was also a little uh, a little bit of my own personal expertise because I'm a film critic and I like good movies. <laughs> and uh, and it bothered me that this wasn't. <laughs> also true. So, also uh, true. <laughs> no, this is not a good film. It's, no. it's not entertaining. It doesn't have any froth or pop or energy. This is what you call a baseline reading. Yeah. This is uh, what a movie looks like before you add anything to it. Yeah. Uh, I had someone give me the old, uh, when I tweeted about this, they gave me the old, um, well, you're supposed to turn off your brain. And I'm like, you know what turning off your brain does? It literally would kill you. <laughs> you're not supposed to turn off your, I can enjoy I dumb turn- things with my brain on, thank you very much. It's just that don't, the, 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 I turned off my brain and I stopped breathing. Well, yeah. like, if you turn off your brain, you're, what you're actually, people are saying is, it's not about turning off your brain. You're, you're turning off as your standards. And that's not yeah. my job. I can enjoy silly things. I can enjoy stupid things. Well, and, and we, I can enjoy schlock and camp. We've talked about uh, 
but that's reviewing things like sort of on a curve, like when yeah. you talk about uh, reviewing the Hallmark Christmas movies. Yeah, because the, those are because not grand the standards works of are art, different. But yeah, the yeah. standards are different. Yeah, exactly. And this is one where the standard is just sexy, fun, exciting heist movies, and this isn't even remotely that. It's at best, it moves along pretty quick, but that's. <laughs> Ba- look, basic, That's not great. Basic clarity. Oh, they, there is a scene. I do want to call uh, shout out. There's a scene where they have to break into a supervillain's lair mm-hmm. and like sneak into his vault to get a treasure out of it. Mm-hmm. And the supervillain is played by Chris Diamantopoulos. Oh yeah, uh, who I didn't even recognize, but he was Mo in the Three Stooges, the the Farrelly Brothers movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he was Mo. And and he, he was a good Mo. And he is complete. Like he's a completely different yeah. person in this movie, playing this sort of like. Soft-spoken, doing Eddie Redmayne's voice from Jupiter Ascending, yeah. uh, kind of supervillains. Like I think he's like a Spanish supervillain, something like that. Yeah. He's actually like he's, he's they call him Soto Voce. Yeah. So I think that actually make him Italian. But anyway, um, there's there's something in this. Before we move on, I've already done this twice, but uh, I'm not one to really complain too much about plot holes unless. The movie is so bad, I have nothing else to think about. But there's one that really pisses me off in this movie, just because they literally just said something, and then like three minutes later, they show how stupid it was. But there's a bit where they're in an underground bunker, and there's a car in the bunker. And there's a moment where they're like, how did they get this in here? Did they remove it piece by piece and then reassemble it? And then Dwayne Johnson's like, no, 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 no. See, there's a tunnel over there. They just drove it through the tunnel. Hmm. And everyone's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And then later on, like less than five minutes later, we see that the tunnel ends 75 feet up in the middle of a waterfall. And I'm like, how did they get the car in the waterfall? That's your explanation? (laughs) Is that they put this car in the top of a waterfall? There's... Th- that That's scene like, is uh, there is a scene where they have to uh, and this is, takes place all over the world they yeah, br- they break into driving. a cave in one of you know it's a a, tre- a cave in Argentina full of uh, absconded Nazi treasures yeah were Nazis operating. stole a bunch of treasures from and, all over Europe and they brought them here yeah. and our heroes our ostensible heroes are sneaking around in this cave saying wow look at all this neat stuff what should we do with it all what what do we take. And I just said out loud, return it to its rightful owners. Yeah, I know you're thieves, but you're not you're not pro Nazi thieves. Can, can, like you're can not... you like at least address the fact that these these, these things got Nazis. here by yeah. like ill means? Like and it's and not like ill means, it's like, oh no, Gal Gadot stole it. Like, no 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 no. Nazi stole it. This should be the line you don't cross. Yeah, yeah. This is the line so that you actually, like, we like you as characters yeah, the, in that way. Movies that make the National Treasure films look suave and sophisticated by comparison. And well-researched. <laughs> anyway, we got to move on. Uh, now, I didn't see, like, the two quote-unquote serious movies this week. I will. Because I actually really want to. Right. But I had to end up having a really busy so week. You, and didn't I, see, you didn't see Home Alone 6? I, I thought I, you... Do you honestly think... Yeah. There is any goddamn way I wasn't going to see Home Alone 6. I, I, I knew you were going to, which yeah. meant I knew I kind of had to. Yeah, I, we actually had this conversation. I hate you. You're welcome. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about Kenneth Branagh's Belfast? Yeah, we're gonna, we'll save Home Alone for later. All Let's right. talk about Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which I really want to see because it, it actually looks pretty good. Is okay. it good? Uh, it is quite good. Um, Kenneth Branagh is, he is an incredibly melodramatic director. Yeah. 
Uh, whether he's making a good film or a bad film, he's swinging big. Uh, sometimes he swings big and it sucks. He mm-hmm. made Artemis Fowl. He made Thor. Those movies mm-hmm. suck. I, I think Thor is fine. I Thanks think Thor sucks. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think there are other... Can, he, he made Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. Uh, I think Ryan that's Shadow way worse than Thor. They're, they're, Do we appreciate you know that it's worse than Thor? You know what? They're all bad. Uh, okay, fine. So, some I would of his say films are a little, levels, right. a, a little bit uh, debated. Like uh, his, he did a version of Frankenstein, which I'm fond of, but a lot of people aren't. I think uh, Robert De Niro is amazing in it. I wish the movie was as good as he is. Uh, what I appreciate is all of the scenes with Dr. Frankenstein are really kind of like wild and the camera moves a lot and there's loud music. And then when we finally get to the monster... Everything's calm. Yeah. The camera is still. There's no music. Seriously, th- it's, it's, De- it's an artistic choice. Robert De Niro's performance as the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein mm. is dramatically underrated. I think it's one of his better performances and nobody <laughs> talks about it. It's a real bummer. Uh, here he's uh, doing something a, a little bit more intimate, uh, that more, than, more intimate than he's ever done before. He's made movies about sort of uh, the theatrical experience. He did a really great film called uh, In the Bleak Midwinter, which was released in the United States as a midwinter's tale. Did you see his big chill knockoff Peter's Friends? I did, back in yeah. the day. Yeah, it's, it's cute. It's, it's sweet cute. film. Um, here he's kind of telling his own story. This is semi-autobiographical about his own childhood in Belfast in the 1960s. Hmm. And this almost, almost the entirety of this movie takes place on a single block. This little short block in Belfast. That's cool. In the 1960s. It's shot in uh, this gorgeous bright black and white. Mm. And right on this block, right in the beginning, we see essentially the uh, the beginning of the Troubles. Ah. That is uh, a, a long span of uh, rioting and violence spi- uh, spurred by uh, religious conflict. It was Protestants versus Catholics. Mm. Look it up. I'm not an expert. But uh, this is what that time looks like for a young child growing up in in the 1960s. And how he's, old is he at this point? He's about eight. Okay, so quite young. And his life is occupied by play. And this film is very, very careful to show us the details and the joy and the importance and the bliss of just playing around as a little kid. Aww. So it, it starts with him and he's, you know, he's like waving a two by four and has a trash can lid and he's a knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has conversations with other kids. Like, how how do you know if, if somebody stops, he talks to an older girl who's like maybe like 12 or 13. It's like, how, how do I know if somebody stops me on the street and asks me if I'm Protestant or Catholic? Well, you got it. You got to lie. Well, okay. But if I lie, then they know I'm lying, right? Okay. So you got to do like the double lie. So you got to tell the truth. So I got to tell the truth. Like that sort of uh, yeah. authoritative speak that you have when you're a child when you're sure you know everything. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. That, that confidence you have when you're eight. If you speak with confidence, you're right. It doesn't yeah. actually matter what you say. Uh, he goes to the movies every once in a while, uh, which is you know it, it, an exhilarating experience for him. But it's not... What that, does he go see? Uh, what Are there real movies? See? Like, what does he go see? No, he goes to see real movies. We yeah. don't see the footage on the screen, though. Okay. It's just sort of... He, he gets to... His dad will take him there occasionally. I'm, I'm, I'm curious because... Um, um, Oftentimes, the things are thematically connected to the movie we're watching, but in this case, if it's somewhat autobiographical, I'm kind of curious what movies oh. <laughs> he wanted to like. Yes, I want to make sure I, I show people that I watched, you know, Olivier's Henry V, or it, it that I watched some pirate movie, or whatever he wanted. It, yeah, might have been, it, it could have been important. Uh, his dad is played by Jamie Dornan, who gives, who, between this and Barb and Star, might have given some of the two best performances of the year. Because in wow. this, he's actually a pretty. He's a, a gambling addict, but he's also very kind. Mm-hmm. He's a very multifaceted character. He's away from his family a lot. He works overseas in England, 
and wants to move the family there during the Troubles. But the problem is Belfast is home, isn't mm-hmm. it? And there's a lot a lot about the importance of this community, how everybody's sort of raising this young boy. The boy is named Buddy, by the way. Mm. Uh, let me look at Buddy Branagh. <laughs> Uh, it's it's clearly a stand-in for Brenna. He's played by a young actor named Jude Hill. Who's very very good. Okay. Um, but uh, he and his his mother, his mother has has a name. I'm going to butcher. I apologize. I think it's pronounced Catronia Balfi. Okay. Uh, and Catronia Balfi and Jamie Dornan. Wow, my parents are like the most attractive people in the world. Oh, uh, poor <laughs> you. Yeah, poor you. Oh, uh, your poor genetics. She's stuck at home raising the children a lot and uh, he's overseas a lot and there's a lot of debate as to we can just flee the country, run away from our debts, essentially, because he has a lot of debt from gambling. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of talk about how the... the tax board has been looking into his past and they keep on finding new things to, like, charge them for. Oh, God. And so, yeah, she's busy sort of, like, trying to raise the kids and she's just completely overwhelmed and... He ends up having a lot of conversations because his dad is away and his mom is just stressed out with his grandma and grandpa, who also live with him. Mm. Grandma's played by Judy Dench. Ah, uh, and she's not even in the trailer. Yeah, she, she she's in it. She's in it. Yeah, she's know. there. Okay, weird. And grandpa is played by Kieran Hines, great actor, who is uh, he's so damn good in this he's movie. Really good actor. He is so good in this movie. He, he, most people know him from like the shitty Hollywood roles where he plays like. A KGB agent or Satan, but when yeah. you give him a good role, he's amazing. <laughs> well, it, it just shows the versatility of, yeah. of him as an actor. Uh, and they are the ones who are sort of teaching uh, the young buddy sort of a little bit more about his, his moral life and his heart. Uh, we get to see what it takes to raise a child, and it takes a village to raise a child, and the village is Belfast, some uh, the place where Kenneth Branagh grew up. So he actually has a lot of uh, a lot of very warm, broad melodramatic, in a broad and melodramatic way, things to say about the importance of community mm-hmm. and what happens when a community is torn apart, and even when. F- the, the sidewalk is being torn up to form a barricade on his block. He still just needs to go to school and is concerned about the pretty girl looking at him in yeah. class. Well, he's a little kid. Yeah, that, that's contest. what's important yeah. to him. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, we get to, and there's never the sense that he's like, he's in a kind of immediate peril. He, uh, Kenneth Brown is really, really good about steering away from that tendency of a lot of, uh, I guess the, it's, you see it most in the Academy Award nominated short films mm. where kids are immediately put in peril yeah. and everything's really kind of harrowing and you're clutching at your throat waiting for a kid to die. And, and dramatically, uh, it's a cheap shot. Yeah. It's it's super easy. It's, it's, like, or it's like watching a parent die as mm. well. Like, it's something that a lot of people are familiar with or they really have anxiety about. And so you don't even have to do it good to get yeah, people. Yeah. yeah. So it's often and, people and we, who aren't good at things do it. We understand that things are dangerous for this kid, but from his perspective, life is just sort of like this now and he doesn't like it mm-hmm. uh, but he still gets to have christmas time he gets an international rescue outfit that is from the thunderbirds mm. and that made me smile a lot because i love the thunderbirds <laughs> but yeah he's concerned with doing well in math because if he does well in math he gets to move up in the classroom and if he moves up enough he gets to sit right next to the girl he has a crush on mm-hmm. and isn't that cute that is cute um, there's a, a pretty harrowing moment near the end of the film where he gets involved in a riot and he has to sort of forced to take part in looting and how that uh, how that plays out is actually 
has a really weirdly sweet coda at the end of it about sort of the the innocence of this young child. Hmm. Like I said, this this isn't hard hitting or dour. It's not hazy or serious. It's actually incredibly light and funny. And as such, I think hits emotionally a little bit harder. It's a little bit sentimental, mm. yeah. but it's supposed to be sentimental. This yeah. is a nostalgia piece. Yeah, sentiment is not inherently a mm. bad thing. Sometimes it can be overdone, but mm. that can be done with anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So th- this is really, really terrific. Great. And, you know, it, it's what my mom likes to call a hanky movie. Yeah. Because right? you'll be blowing your nose by the end of it. Yeah, well... He's going and for that Oscar. He's going for it. He's, he's going for it, but not in an artificial way. This mm. feels very personal and very heartfelt. And I, I appreciate that from Kenneth Branagh, who can mm. be an incredibly artificial filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, in a way, I appreciate, but, you know, mm. he likes to sort of gussy everything up. This is one of his mm. more sedate movies. Okay. And he can work in both molds. And That's I, really exciting. I, I, yeah, so I really, really liked Belfast. Good for him. Well, uh, tell me about another movie directed by an actor, mm. uh, Passing. Uh, okay, I will. Uh, yeah, this was directed by Rebecca Hall. This is her first feature film as a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rebecca Hall is one of my favorite performers, mm-hmm. and I'm mad I didn't see this. Uh, yeah, she's on it. Um, yeah. This is a film that stars uh, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga. They are friends from Harlem. This takes place in uh, the early, like, 29 or 30, so mm-hmm. around that time. 1929, 1930. 1929, yeah. 1930, yeah. Uh, in New York. And uh, the Tessa Thompson character is uh, in the city, uh, taking care of some errands, when she uh, is just sort of, like, looking around a room and sees somebody that looks vaguely familiar, this blonde woman, uh, comes over. It turns out it's an old friend of hers. And over the course of the afternoon, where they're sort of talking and reconnecting a little bit, we learn that the Ruth Nega character has dyed her hair blonde so she can pass as a white woman. Uh, the film is shot in black and white, and I think a big uh, a big reason for that was so we were not sort of obsessed with their their skin, essentially, yeah, their skin yeah, tones. Yeah, wh- whether or not the, mm. the audiences would, would question it. And yeah, and yeah. Uh, this this was something that happened. A lot of yeah. uh, uh, black people disguised themselves as white people. Yeah. Uh, so they could circumvent racism in in, in a way. And, um, and so she's married to a white man who thinks she's a white woman. Uh, he's a mm-hmm. racist white man. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, this is sort of like a very gentle conversation. They're sort of reconnecting. They're talking about uh, the notion of passing. Tessa Thompson could possibly pass. Why don't you try this? And, uh, you know, a conversation, conversation, conversation. Racial slur right there. It drops it. You know, the racism is still right there in their face. It's floating around mm-hmm. everything they do. Uh, this is also something that... Um, addresses the notion of slumming. Uh, the notion of slumming comes from the phenomenon of when uh, white people from the uh, white part of town mm-hmm. would go into the uh, black slums to uh, essentially see what, like, a, get a little taste of another culture before they yeah. could, you know, flee back to the white well, suburbs. Yeah. This, let's, go to, let's go to this <coughs> bar where the music is different and the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. And the, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, so... Uh, the Ruth Nega character, in order to um, sort of see Tessa Thompson some more, begins to go on these like sort of slumming excursions when really she's just going back to her old Harlem neighborhood right. and hanging out with people she knew. Uh, and over the course of these excursions, and this is an incredibly sedate movie, hmm. uh, and a lot of it is just sort of conversations in rooms, uh, we see the the true nature and the true strength and maybe even the romantic attraction between these two women. 
there's a, a few very telling scenes, like where Ruth Nega is talking to somebody else, and Tessa Thompson is sitting nearby, and Tessa Thompson just reaches out and holds her hand, and they kind of look at each other for a minute while holding hands. Yeah, and there is this sort of s- strong bond that is clearly uh, forming, not forming, just sort of being reinforced between the two of them. But you also get the sense that there might be some sort of romantic attraction between these two. That doesn't really play out. The film ends in a very unexpected way. Okay. Uh, where um, don't ruin it. I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to to describe it in in a is way where I'm not going to say, well, say what is happens. Is it satisfying? But, well, that's the thing. It isn't really because it's it something very unexpected happens and something uh, very not really well defined happens. There's a moment in this film that I had to rewind a couple times just to make sure what happened because something very dramatic happens and you're not really sure like what, what spurred this thing. Yeah. So it, it does sort of end rather abruptly where this is something, this is sort of a consequence of the world we live in, but it's not, it's not sort of this grand climax or something that was pointed to earlier in the film. Right. And as such, you know, if I were watching like a one act play or even just a a full stage play, something that I expected might feel a little bit more natural because I was in the room with these actors Mm. here in the film. It feels a a little bit uh, truncated, like there was something else that was cut from this movie that would would have led to that. Um, But I have to be vague because I don't want to say what any of this stuff is. So I apologize. I want to check it out. what uh, what this film is, and this is something you'll find with a lot of films that are directed by actors, is it's an acting showcase. It's uh, more about the characters and the relationship and the way they talk with one another than it is about the series of events. And Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega are fantastic in this movie, and we really do get a sense as to the nature of their relationship, how long they've known each other. Uh, evidently, uh, Rebecca Hall... Uh, who is English mm-hmm. and Ruth Nega, who is English, uh, wanted to make this film in such a way that Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega could switch roles if they needed to. Yeah. Tessa Thompson is American. So she was really devoted to the role she was playing. She didn't want to do that sort of like actually switcheroo thing that, that the Brits so love. Mm. Um, I remember there was a production, uh, traveling around here in the United States of Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, another mention of Frankenstein where it would start up Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah, and depending uh, on what version, depending on what night you saw it, no, Cumberbatch would either play the, the monster the, or the doctor. Yeah, yeah they, or, would, they would switch versa, the yeah. roles of the monster and the doctor. And yeah. uh, this is which is it's, clever, which is a a fun acting exercise, yeah. and b clever because you get people going to see the play more than once. Yeah. Oh, I saw Cumberbatch as the doctor last time. Yeah. Oh, I went to see yeah. Clue, and now oh, was Miss Scarlet again. And, and, uh, I feel like this is a, a fun thing, and I see this in Shakespeare a lot, where they'll sort of like shuffle around the roles. Um, I've noticed mostly with uh, British actors. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think uh, Tessa Thompson wasn't comfortable with that. She wanted to s- sort of play her role and really devote herself to the role. And mm. she is really deeply immersed in this, and she's really fantastic. Tessa Thompson is great. There are, uh, the, Tessa Thompson's great. Ruth Nega is a really great actor. I've, I've just, seen, he just doesn't act as much as I would like them to. I haven't seen Ruth Nega in uh, too many movies. I know she was in a, some high-profile TV series. She um, was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That was like okay. a big breakout thing. Um, you saw Loving, though. Right? Yeah, Loving yeah, was where, was, I, where I, I first saw her. Loving for that, I think. So yeah. he's very good in that movie. And uh, L- Loving is a frustrating movie because it's about these two people at the center of this really sort of landmark case. But the whole point is their lives are kind of boring, yeah. <laughs> and we just sort of spend the movie with their them and their boring lives. And 
it, at least Ruth Nega gets to have a few like dramatic phone calls in that movie. Yeah. But yeah, it's now the whole point is that a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the racist laws mm. uh, were the miscegenation laws. Yeah, the miscegenation yeah. laws specifically where they they outlawed uh, where white people weren't allowed to marry people of color in various mm. uh, states. Um, and like the whole point of the movie is these two people got married and it's completely uneventful. There's nothing like <laughs> melodramatic or weird about it. You're they the only, the racists are the only ones making a thing out of this. And like they weren't, they weren't made, but they, were, it's they also didn't want to be like, film. Yeah, they didn't want to be like rebels or anything. So yeah, that's yeah. a really sedate movie. I, um, this is, um, <laughs> this is a, a weird way to say it, but this is the most I've seen Ruth Nega act. <laughs> like the, the biggest she's acted that I've okay. seen of, of from her. And yeah, the, but most importantly, it's about the two of them and the relationship they have and the conversations they have. And the, that's really where a lot of the, the warmth and the humanity starts to come forth. And yeah, it's, it's really, uh, and it, you know, it has of course open conversations about race and racism in 1929, 1930 America and yeah. how uh, just what an insidious thing that was. But it is about it's. But it's not a film specifically about that phenomenon. It's that's sort of the backdrop of the friendship between these two women. It's actually okay. about them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another movie set in the big city about friendship. Oh God. Well, I can't. You segue from 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 passing to Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> you do it if you're so fucking big. Uh, I'm not as big as a big red dog. Heyo, uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog. It's a live-action movie based on a series of popular, very two books for very small kids. They're picture books, hmm. and it's about a family, and they have oh, yeah. a dog. Nor- and Norman and- Bridwell is the author of the original Clifford books. Did you read Clifford when you were a kid? Yeah, I, I don't remember it very vividly, but I did read it. It wasn't it was one of my favorites, but I read I read the Clifford books. Um, hmm. And the whole thing is that it's a pretty pretty uh, standard sort of uh, family unit, but they have a dog, and their dog is like the size of a house. It's a really really big dog. Hmm. And that's basically it. The dog creates some problems, but it's just a sweet old dog, and it doesn't really. Well, there's, there's no, nothing really terribly Cl- intense happens in any uh, of the they, books. They they buy Clifford as a pup in the book. Yeah, this is the 1963 book. They buy Clifford as a puppy. Uh, em- Emily Elizabeth, mm-hmm. the the owner of Clifford, uh, regular sized puppy grows and grows and grows and grows is is bigger than their house. Mm-hmm. And I like having a big dog, and that's it. Yeah, and it's uh, pretty sweet. About loving things, even if they stand out or maybe make a mess or whatever like that, and I think it's a pretty standard, perfectly unassailable message. And now it's a movie, uh, and, and they have and they got a smear movie all over it <laughs> because you yes. can't you can't have a ninety minute feature film about how fun it is to have a big red dog. You have to have. An evil geneticist on your yeah, trail. I'm gonna actually say this right now. I'm I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna be super harsh on this one. I actually found it's, this to be, at the very least, pretty kind-hearted and sweet. We can make fun of parts of it because mm. it's it's a stupid Hollywood movie in a lot of ways. But when it all is said and done, I think the majority of this movie is about a young girl and she feels. Just kind of lonely. She's got a single mom. She kind of doesn't have any friends at school. She's mocked because she has a. She's she's going to school on a student loan. Like yeah. she has a scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Everyone else. She, else she's is working like class. Ultra, ultra rich. In she's working class, and everyone else around her is rich. Uh, she's played by an act, young actress named Darby Camp. Uh, and um, yeah, and she's lonely. And uh, while her mother is away on a work thing. 
Uh, she's being babysit by her uh, layabout uncle, played by Jack Whitehall, who was uh, recently in the Jungle, Jungle Cruise. Cruise. Yeah, uh, charming actor. He's, and uh, he's, he's he's the worst part of this movie. He's he's, he's doing his best. He, he does he's, have, he's a terrible role. He, he's trying to be like super. Fu- he's trying to do the Ryan Reynolds thing in Red yeah. Notice. He's trying to just be sort of like quippy and funny, yeah. and kind of like the the lovable loser type. And yeah. oh gosh, it is insufferable. No, I think you need to get someone a bit more grounding in here. But uh, in any case. Uh, they stumble across uh, a, um, you know, like when you're like driving by like a pet store or something and they're having an adoption day oh. and they've got like, you know, like a barrel full of puppies or like, you know, a bunch of cats or whatever. And everyone gets there. And you, the whole point is you would go, oh, aminals. And then like you, <laughs> you, you form a bond with one of them and oh, I have to take this one home and love it forever now. And that's what they do. And yeah. I've gotten pets that way. A lot of people have. It's perfectly nice. They run into one uh, run by John Cleese, playing a character named Bridwell. Get it? And he's got a... Uh, Bridwell? Bridwell. Isn't that the author of the books? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Get it? Yes, I get it. Now you do. Okay. Uh, anyway, so they go into like his, his... But all of his like animals are like eccentric or maybe a little magical. And one of them is this little red puppy. Bright, bright red, crimson dog. There's this, there's this weird opening where we just see like a stray dog and her puppies in like a warehouse somewhere, and then the dog catchers come and take all of them except the little red one, and it's like, oh, that's so sad. Are we gonna like see them like reunited later in the movie? No, that's <laughs> not a thing. It's not nearly as emotional as the really very good reboot of Benji Netflix put out a couple of years ago. Oh, I didn't see that. Benji. It's quite yeah. solid. It's it's good good little bit of suspense there, but like the opening bit where Benji there's a little puppy and he's on his own is like will reduce me to tears within five minutes. It's good storytelling. So there's like a slightly not as good version of that. But now there's a little red dog. It's done in CGI. Fine. What do you expect him to do? And um, there's a bit where the dog is running around New York and almost gets hit by a car and it's really sad. And there's actually this really sweet bit where the dog is in a park and he just runs into John Cleese. And John Cleese apparently can like understand dog. Mm. And he's just like, oh, look at you. Oh, you seem a bit lost, don't you? (laughs) And the dog goes, Ah, yes, yes. Stick up for yourself. That's good. Yeah. Oof, oof. Yes, yes, you're a dog. All right, come with me. <laughs> John, John, John Cleese ever game. It, yeah. It just, he, he, I've, seen him, I've seen him play uh, in a lot of uh, sort of kid films or kid-friendly films. He was the voice of an ape named Ape in George of the Jungle back yeah. in the 90s. Uh, and yeah, he'll he'll sell it. He knows he knows what he's doing well, there. It's, it's funny to me because if you follow John Cleese on social media, he's kind of an asshole right now. Well, and he's, he's, not, he's always been sort he's of always an asshole, been asshole, but, but now yeah. he's like really just like doubling down on well, we have to be able to tell racist jokes, and it just feels like you're you really want your uncle to shut up at Thanksgiving. It's an odd thing because he never told racist yeah, jokes. Not, yeah. His jokes aren't especially like like offensive well, or I, anything. I, I know he, he, um, he, most laughs he's ever gotten have been pretty much for everyone. Yeah, like something like the cheese shop. You know, there's yeah, there's, there's no, nothing uh, racist in the cheese shop. There's nothing even offensive. Well, there's nothing I, uh, controversial in that. It's disappointing. But then I'm watching him in this and it's like, you don't need to be, you're very charming on your own. You're doing fine. <laughs> what the hell? Why are we making a thing out of this? Tastes evolve. What you can get away with in, in comedy mm. and what people find funny evolves over time. And the longer you live, the more cycles of that you're going to go through. That's part of it. Mm. 
The audience will tell you what they think is funny. And if they don't think that's funny anymore, it's kind of your job to listen rather than berate them. But well, which, anyway. is, which is odd because that's never been what his comedy has been about. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. really weird, right? It's, so I, anyway, I don't understand. I don't want to. I, I, I want to. I have to, I have to look. Especially, especially considering you don't really know the context. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, but anyway, he's, John, John he's sweet in, in this. Movie, yeah. He's sweet in this. Um, the girl ends up forming a bond with a little dog. The dog like steals away in her backpack and. Uh, she wishes for them to be like the bigger people in all mm. of this hardship that they're going through. And then she wakes up in the morning and the dog is like filling the size of her bedroom. And it's really yeah, big. Just o- and, overnight it yeah. becomes this giant. It's, it still looks like a puppy. It's well, gigantic CGI. And, and I really it's, like it's that a, it is a puppy. It doesn't, it's not like particularly intelligent. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a puppy. It's not, a, it's not like a, uh, it, it's, it's as smart as a puppy. It's yeah. as smart as a bright puppy. And if you've ever had a puppy or even a kitten, you understand that when they're young and they're kind of uncoordinated mm-hmm. and they're very enthusiastic and they got way too much energy and you see them like bump into things and they're like, oh, that's so cute. cute and then you realize clumsy, that like yeah. if there was the size of an elephant, that would suck. You would love them so stuff. much. You would love them so much. But... Please, well, the, uh, I'm trying to get my homework done. It's the Stop trial knocking of knocking over the refrigerator. It, it's the trial of the pet owner, isn't yeah. it? Like you, you love that little cute little critter, even though it like wrecks stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think and you love it and you hate it. And I think when Clifford, the big red dog, the movie is good. Hmm. And I'm never going to call it great, but I think there are moments when it is a good little hmm. family film. I, when it's hmm. it's those moments when the dog is just a dog. Yeah, and it's the, my uh, little girl and her dog, and the dog is just being a dog, trying its yeah. best, and it knocks things over, and you love it, and it's just a story about someone with a weird pet. Yeah, when that is what the movie focuses on, it's very sweet, it's very affable. I like it fine. It's it's nothing. It's a lazy Sunday afternoon nap of a movie. <laughs> you know, you put it on, the kids will watch yeah. it. You get to sleep for ninety minutes, and then you're done, and nothing harmful has mm-hmm. really come out of it. Uh, then it's fine when it's and even when it's not fine it's pretty standard pablum like you say there's a bad guy who like wants to like he's trying to like genetically engineer food like bigger food Hmm. there's this really bizarre sequence where he see his lab and it's like a symphony of horrors so you've got like a two-headed goat and like an evil sheep and like it's well, really it, bizarre. My my problem was it if they're gonna go that route, you go go all the way. Show yeah. show Doctor Catheter's lab from Gremlins Two. Yeah, where you see like you know a, a cow with like a colander on its head. Guy, yeah. yeah, you know that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, there's a mean sheep, and it's just mm-hmm. sort of a mean sheep. It doesn't do like it doesn't eat people. It should have eaten somebody. That sheep, yeah. or at least attacked them, yeah, like, like really, really like, violent. Yeah, like shown yeah. something really horrifying about it. It's in this bright, sleek lab. Um, the uh, yeah, the bad guy is like actually trying to do something quite noble. He's trying to grow, like, mm. take care of hunger and grow a food mm. supply. But but he's doing it he's in de- an evil way. What's evil about what he? What he's, he's trying, trying to, to do steal is, the dog. He's trying to steal the dog. That's Which is, that's what that, we don't like. That's definitely not ethical. Yeah. Like we all agree that that's not something he should be doing. I, I suppose not. Yeah. But I also want to know the secret of the dog. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, that, that's the, the, uh, the only explanation we get is uh, Emily Elizabeth uh, has this little puppy and loves it so much. Yeah. That she's sort of like transferred her love into the dog and that's what well, made the dog grow. There's this weird bit where they... That makes me wonder about chihuahuas. Yes. That's very funny. Thank you. Yeah. 
there's a bit in the movie <laughs> where they decide to take they have no idea what the hell's up with this dog, so they take him to a vet. The vet is played by Keenan Thompson. Um it's a nothing burger of a scene. It's basically just the vet goes, Oh, oh I'm uncomfortable with a large dog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I look at its teeth. Oh, but it's very, very large. Oh, never mind. Oh, I can listen to its heart. Ah, oh, it's very, very large. Oh, I can take its temperature. Nah, we're not doing that. And then we're just sort of moving on. But then after they leave the office, there's a long conversation with his receptionist, played by Rosie Perez. <laughs> a weird cameo. Very yeah. weird. Ca- like, really stands out like a sore thumb in it. Like, just sort of like, that's a really small role for Rosie Perez. Okay. Well, you can you can tell with the appearance of Rosie Perez that uh, well, it turns out New York is another character, and they're trying <laughs> they're trying to uh, make make it about sort of the neighborhood. And by the yeah. end of the movie, all of the uh, the uh, tenants of this one particular brownstone yeah, are the together. Owners of the and, local you know, bodega. They're all trying to help yeah, Clifford. And, the, and here's the, the the wacky old Romanian lady who drinks condensed milk and yeah. uh, the the built the. the, the strict but kindly building super played by uh david allen greer yeah. uh you know all of these people are gathering together it never feels like this isn't a lived-in world this is a movie world yeah. everything's sort of clean and slick and brightly lit and these characters are uh off the rack clean kind of weirdness very much so uh like i said i, I want the lab to be really scary and weird yeah. i want the characters to See, feel like they're actual people in the I real world like, because can... when you do that the appearance of this enormous red dog feels unusual. Right. See, I think... <coughs> bless you. Excuse I, me. I feel like um, this isn't that. I feel mm. like this is... Again, this is based on like a picture book. Mm. And, a, and a pretty reassuring one as well. And I think we're just trying to go for like good vibes here. Yeah. So the villain can't be too villainous. It's not great drama, but whatever. And... To get back to my point, Rosie Perez says, oh, you got a giant red dog? Did you get it from a guy named Bridwell? And apparently he's been doing this for a long time. And apparently there's probably like a whole spinoff series of people just getting magical dogs that solve their problems or magical snakes or magical birds or whatever. It's a Paramount Plus animated series, Bridwell's Animals. I, I, you know what? That's not a bad pitch. But like mm. this and this is this is the gag. Mm. It's then, so she says, yeah, this, this is a thing that happens. People sometimes get magical animals from this guy, and they're, they're magical in a way that solves their problems or teaches them a valuable lesson. So, you know, go at it, I guess. And it's like, hey, thanks, Rosie Perez. You were in Fearless. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Weird. Um, Remember when you were in White Men Can't Jump? Were you, and, you were in uh, and... Dance with the Devil? Remember when you were in Dance with the Devil? Oh, yeah. With Javier Bardem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't she? She was Perdita Durango. In that she one, was Perdita right? Durango. Yeah, in that. yeah, yeah. That's a good movie, actually. Um, but uh, anyway, just just this weird standout cameo. Um, but no, I again, I I don't have any animosity towards this. I've seen a lot of bad kids movies, bad kids movies where it feels like nobody cared, hmm. nobody was trying, nobody cared about the audience. Like they don't. There's seen a lot of animated movies or live action movies. Made for children, in which I honestly can't tell people like who made it care about kids. Mm. They want them to feel good, reassured, teach them a valuable lesson, something. I feel it's like a lot of them are just trying to produce stuff kids will buy yeah. or try to convince their parents to buy. And here, I I have no meaningful animosity towards this movie. There are things about it that aren't good, but it's about a little girl and her puppy, and the puppy is a cute puppy that's trying really hard, <laughs> and it's. At the risk of this is this was an accidental pun, but uh, it's tame. 
<laughs> it's, but it's but it's not but it's, it's not bad, and I think for little kids, this is not a bad movie. I, I don't think it's bad, but it is yeah. incredibly bland. Yes, I, I want fair. a lot more personality and imagination in a film for kids. I think it would be better uh, with all of that. But I, this I, is I appreciate its gentleness, and you do make a good point in that, uh, even though it's based on a well-known uh, children's book or a mm. property, if you want to use the business term, mm. uh, it it doesn't feel like a, a merchandising bonanza. Yeah. This isn't trying to sell kids on an expanded universe. Yeah. Yeah, it's not uh, trying to sell kids yeah. universe. It's not trying to sell kids a lot of toys. I'm sure they'll, they'd sell some plushies, but that's pretty mm. harmless, and they were selling them anyway. Clifford's a big, popular kid's book. Yeah, yeah it's been around since yeah. the 60s. Yeah, so, uh, yeah I, I can appreciate those kinds of details, but I, I really want there to be actual humor rather than mm. something that stands in for humor. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like there was more personality in the Paw Patrol. And that's a pretty bland movie, too. No. Uh, I think that movie has more energy than it has well, personality. True, yeah. I don't know. Um, but fair enough. Mm. Um, and then let's talk about our last uh, our last film on the docket. Uh, speaking of uh, exploiting intellectual properties, oh god, Home Sweet Home Alone is Disney's first foray into Home Alone. When yeah, Disney they, bought Fox, bought it. Uh, when Disney bought uh, Fox, they bought everything that Fox owned, every franchise that Fox had created. Some of which don't really fit the Disney brand, which is why their first Predator movie is going to go to Hulu. Okay, but. Home Alone, at the very least, feels kind of Disney. Like, this is actually one where you're just like, yeah, it kind of makes sense that Disney would get Home Alone eventually. Like, that's at least kind of the thing they do. Well, Home, Home Alone was a huge hit when it came out in 1990. And, uh, like, it was like the number one movie of the year. Wasn't yeah, it, it, was it was just, it, it was an enormous, enormous movie. Yeah. And what I, th- a lot of people sort of connected to just sort of the Christmas season and mm-hmm. uh, sort of the sweetness of the story. But I think... The first Home Alone, and the second one especially, mm-hmm. uh, has a, kind of a dark edge to it. Uh, the main character, Kevin McAllister, played by Macaulay Culkin, uh, as many critics have pointed out, is a bit of a psychopath. He uh, <laughs> is is very cruel. He's. Um, mm-hmm. It's also been pointed out over the years that uh, the Home Alone movies are actually very much about class. Very much and, about class. Uh, but and Kevin, about how Kevin is only able to do what he does because he's very rich. Because he's very rich. And in fact, this is yeah. a, a film series, at least those first two, uh, are about how great it is to be rich and how uh, the rich should be permitted to do whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, Donald that Trump is suck. in the second movie. Yes, he is. So uh, that's that's a, a pretty good sign as to how these yeah. films deal with class. Well, and I, uh, I, I take issue with it. I liked Home Alone 1 and 2 when I was a kid, when I came out. It was very right. age-appropriate for me. It was like 8 and 9 or whatever when those things came out. And when you're a kid, Home Alone 1 and 2, which most people would consider to be the good ones, mm-hmm. um, when you're a kid... Those movies work, and when they work, because I think, and I think this is John Hughes who really got this. John Hughes understands that there is a fundamental fantasy here for kids. Mm. Here's the fantasy: you've got the house all to yourself. You can That's do, it. You can and you can break all the rules, <laughs> and you can break all the. Yeah. But time one, you got the house all to yourself. You can break all the rules that your parents have set for you. You can eat anything in the fridge. You can break stuff. You can slide ice, down the banister. Ice cream for breakfast. Yeah. Sled down the stairs. All of that. Yeah. And the cherry on the cake, or the cherry on the Sunday, I guess. Whatever. The cherry on top. <laughs> That's a mixed metaphor. Not, yeah. The, 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 on top of it all, at the end, you get to prove that you're better than adults. Because there are these two bumbling adults who are going to come get you. And you've, you're going to use all of your kid know-how, all of your toys, all of your cleverness, everything you've ever learned from a Looney Tune. To take down two guys who are are bad guys, legitimately bad guys who want to hurt you. So Kevin is actually, even though 
the movie like turns into a completely different experience because all of a sudden physics don't matter anymore and uh-huh. concussions aren't a thing. Um, beyond that, Kevin is has permission to try to hurt the wet bandits because they're trying to hurt him. Okay. So it's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. And the movie gets away with it. I think the reason why the first Home Alone works is because John Hughes understands that Home Alone doesn't work. When you think about the the you amount the, of... You mean in the real world. I think in the real world. I think he understands that in order to get to the sweet spot in this movie, the second act and the third act, he has to do so much heavy lifting in the first act of that movie before the parents disappear. Hmm. Every single thing in that first act, every line of dialogue, every single thing that happens has to create this perfect storm of coincidence Hmm. where it's not just that Kevin is home alone. It's that everyone in his neighborhood is away for the holidays as well. So that's solved. So you can break into the house and no one will notice. Yeah. You know, like there's a million different things that have to happen in order for home alone to work. Because if any of those things don't happen, the movie falls apart and it still kind of does. There's really no reason for Kevin not to call the cops. (laughs) He knows the cops are out there. He could have done it, you know, at any time. It's weird. Home Alone 2 actually kind of loses me because in that one, Kevin, the first one, Kevin thinks he wished his parents away because of a Christmas wish. Hmm. He's a little kid. And the second one, he knows he's in New York. He knows he has his dad's money. He knows he's spending it. And he knows he's conning a hotel and all the workers out of money. He's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a good person. And, and when movie. and when the, the same bandits from the first movie come yeah. after him, he does things that would kill them. Yeah, it's, even it's, more so than the original. Yeah, like, like, really bad. And that's one where it doesn't make any sense. Like, in the first one, they're coming after Kevin and his house. Hmm. So he's got to protect him. Here, he, like, turns another house into a thing and lures him there. It's like, you know they're robbing the toy store at midnight. Call the cops. Yeah. Tell them someone's robbing a toy store at midnight. They'd probably be interested in that, at least in the logic of this universe. There's no reason for you to do this. It's not a well-constructed story. Home Alone 3, I feel like John Hughes was trying to address the fact that there are holes in it. And had a whole thing where, and here's one where the kid does call the cops. But the cops don't believe him. And it becomes a boy great wolf situation and he's stuck anyway. That part makes sense. The characters aren't very interesting. There's no heart to it and the bad guys are... Well, the, the bad guys are, um, I think they're like Russian spies in that one. They're like uh, international just, terrorists who have yeah. like missile launch nuclear code chips in it's, a, it's, in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, remote controlled car. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the series is a little silly. Yeah. Well, uh, cause again, it only works once. It's like yeah, Daffy Duck yeah. blowing himself up. It only works once. If you do it more than once, you realize that you can never do it again. I was reminded of uh, one of the great catch-all lines of dialogue in all of movie history. What are the chances that the same shit would happen to a guy twice yeah. from Die Hard 2? Yeah. Uh, it's Which like, you can get away with once. Once, yeah. If uh, you do it three, a third time, all of a sudden... Because that's why Die Hard doesn't work now. Because John McClane isn't an everyman anymore. No, he's, he's a super... Uh, yeah. Superpowered action hero at this point. If that happened to Kevin every Christmas, it would stop being a thing. Mm. And indeed, in the fourth one, it does happen again. And it's his parents broke up, and his dad turned out to be a real piece of shit, and like left his mom for a trophy wife, and they've got like this smart house, and it's 
It's awful. awful. Oh, yeah. It's Home almost Alone unwatchable. It's so bad. And, and that's the one that was intended to be a pilot for an like, I, Home Alone TV series. I don't so even understand how that, that would have worked. Work. Yeah. Um, and then there was Home Alone 5, which slipped under the radar. And Home Alone 5 actually does all the work. <laughs> it Home sets everything. Like, yeah. in terms of, like, just the sol- how solid the screenplay is. Yeah, in terms of, like, here's why this is happening. Here's why there's a series of coincidences that... Make it so that they're stuck here alone. No one can help. Here's what the bad guys are after. That actually makes sense. Home Alone 5 is actually arguably the best constructed screenplay in the entire franchise. And it came out pretty good. Hmm. I will say this. If you've never seen it, it's at least the third best Home Alone. I'd even say maybe the best. But I think it's at least in the top three. I think it's the best Home Alone. Yeah. Um, just in, in terms of a movie and the characters, yeah. and you have well, Malcolm McDowell's in that one. I know nostalgia is uh, big for a lot of people, and one and two mm. might be hard to supplant, but this is at least a good third place. It's, it's a better movie. Um, yeah. Uh, then there was The Aggression Scale in 2012. That's. <laughs> Stephen T. Miller made a movie called The Aggression Scale, which is very much modeled after Home Alone, but yeah. in that one, the, the child is like an actual murderer. Yeah, you're like, you're like in like, uh, like, you watch Dexter or something, and it's like, yes, when you were a kid, you used to like do horrible things to small creatures and we knew you'd be a serial killer well imagine that kid in a home alone situation like having to fight off bad guys yeah. with guns and he's gonna actually kill them it's actually quite good it's it's, it's really cool I, really I, really well done i was talking to someone about it like on online and i wanted to share the trailer for the aggression scale in order to like tell them this movie's really good mm. i forgot the trailer for the aggression scale is terrible Oh, is it? It's yeah. not even I never like, saw the it's trailer. It's not even like it gives away too much. It's just a badly done trailer. Ignore the trailer. Do not watch. The trailer will make you think it looks, it's terrible. And I don't blame people for not seeing it based on that trailer. Just watch the movie. It's a good, low budget, hmm. creepy thriller based on Home Alone. But, but now here we have the sixth or seventh uh, yeah. Home Alone, depending well, the, on how you want to count it. The sixth it. official Home Alone. Sixth official Home Alone. And yeah. Uh, yeah, this is the Disney version of it. It's called Home Sweet Home Alone. Hmm. If the previous films were about class... This one's really about class. Yeah, this one's really on the nose about it. Uh, but in a weird this, and unpleasant way. Yeah, because uh, the first Home Alone films were about how great it is to be rich. Yes. And the second one is about how rich kids should be permitted to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film runs with that theme. Uh, the rich kid in the center of this is uh, the kid from Jojo Rabbit. His name is Archie Yates. Not oh. the main kid from Jojo Rabbit, but like... Like his best the, friend. The best yeah. friend who's kind of a true believer... Uh, who's like slowly comes to the realization who's, that who's yeah. great in Jojo Rabbit. He's wonderful in Jojo Rabbit. Uh, here he's at, he's leading the film and uh, unfortunately he's asked to play kind of a bland character. So you could, mm-hmm. you'd be forgiven to, uh, that you might think he's not very good because he's not good here. Yeah. This, but, is, um, this is not his fault. Uh, in this film, we get to follow not just him, but also the story of the thieves that'll go to break in his house. Yeah, and, no, imagine if we really got to know the wet bandits really well, yeah, like so, what motivated them. Uh, in fact, uh, Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper play the eventual bandits. Yeah. And we learn, uh, we spend a lot of time with them. We spend more time with them than the kid. And uh, we learn that they're going to have to sell their house. Yeah. Because they're they're destitute. They didn't yeah. get the jobs they're looking for. Yeah, she's they can't a teacher, the which, which doesn't pay great. He lost his job like a year ago. And yeah, they're just in dire financial straits. And they're and this is the house that they wanted to live forever in. They've got yeah, kids. They don't like their dream has died. Yeah, they don't want to they don't want to have to move, but they understand it's kind of necessary. Yeah. They learn through a fluke of fate that uh, one of his uh, the one of his. His, his mother. mother's dolls that mm. she used to collect. He had them in a box in his attic. Mm. 
was a very rare doll that is worth $200,000. Which would solve all of their financial problems. If they just problems. had this big chunk of change, they yeah. would be able to solve so it. So he runs into the closet to get the doll, but it turns out that earlier that day, they were having an open house, and Archie Yates and his mother mm-hmm. uh, were visiting. They just needed to use the bathroom. They were just being kind of selfish about it. But anyway, he ran into Archie Yates. They had a awkward interaction in which he basically pissed off Archie Yates and he is now convinced that Archie Yates stole the doll hmm. in, out of spite. And so he goes, he, he remembers their name. He looks them up. He goes to their house, but wouldn't you know it? They're all going over, uh, overseas for the holidays. Big, large, rich family yeah. are spending Christmas in Tokyo. Yeah. And they're all a bunch of idiots and they do things like yell out the security go to the house mm. and put and hide their keys uh, in plain sight in front of strangers and so he knows that, like, A, the doll is in his jacket right in that window. B, I know where the keys are, and I know the security code, and that's my own property, and my family is in danger. Should I do it? He, he has every right to take back his own property, which yeah. uh, he, he probably he shouldn't be breaking would, and entering to do it, but he's still, well, it's still he, his property. He makes a point. Just entering. No breaking. He has a key. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. actually a line of dialogue in the film. But yeah. It's, it's, it's an ethical dilemma. But it's like an ethical the, dilemma, yeah. and he, he, he but takes it's not, it. It's not unsympathetic. Takes it back to Ellie Kemper, and they, they keep on reiterating over and over again in what are, are supposed to be comedic scenes but aren't funny uh-huh. that this is something that they, they should do. Yeah. They should take their property back. Yeah, it's ours. That kid took it. Mm. We are actually, he's rich and just took our stuff. And we're suffering and we need this to help our family. And there really isn't like in the grand scheme of things, that would not be immoral because all we want to do is take that. And they think the house initially he thinks the house is empty. Oh, so it's kind of a victimless crime here. But then it turns out the kid is in there and the kid has with him. Uh, one of those like um, it's an, uh, an Alexa. Yeah, basically an Alexa, and uh, but like an off-brand. They made it up for the movie kind of thing. So they think the kid is there with like their grandmother, and so they're like, "Oh shit!" And then they run away, and they they're baiting whether or not they're going to break in. And I'm waiting, like, what? If there's an adult there, you can talk to them. Mm-hmm. The, the movie just died on the vine. <laughs> you think there's an adult in the house? Knock on the door. So I your, think your, your child has your son our property. Might have stolen something from Could us. Could we please? Would you mind? I I know this sounds like an accusation, and it is. I would love to be wrong, but I think your child may have taken our property, just and it's re- really important re- to us. Return it, and we'll be fine. We can describe yeah. it for you in great detail, and there's no way that your your child would have gotten this on their own. And then that would be that. I realize that's not the case, but there's literally no reason for them not to do it. They wanted to do it in the first place. Instead, the movie just forgets about that. <laughs> And decide to start having them like try to break into the house. And then he overhears them talking about selling that ugly boy because it's like an ugly looking doll for $200,000. And he thinks they're going to kidnap him. Yeah. But not in in a way where there's any kind of like threat or evil. Uh, And this is another symptom of uh, a Disney property trying to take all the villainy out of their movies. Yeah. 
they they've been giving uh, like when they revisit a lot of their films in uh, in live action, and Cruella, Maleficent. Yeah. We've yeah. been trying to go back and expunge all wickedness, yeah, out of their stories. Yeah, the villains, uh, the villains were actually good people all along, kind of yeah, thing. Like, and it's like you know, Christopher Robin is yeah. he's he's a bad dad. No, but he can't do anything really evil. Yeah. Which means there's no threat and there's nothing at stake mm-hmm. and the film is completely toothless. All yeah. we're really seeing is a rich boy mm-hmm. doing f- grievous physical harm yeah. to people who are trying to retrieve their property from him that he stole. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then that's how the movie plays out, basically. He will destroy them. And it is a misunderstanding. It's, but, it, he will, yeah. but he will, because like they're not trying to kidnap him. That's why he thinks of it. But it's also the same situation where it's like, again, mom has figured it out. She's in Japan. She's trying to get home. You know, it's going to take a while. It doesn't take place over like a week. It takes place over like a weekend. So not much of a ticking clock here. Mm. There's a whole bit where it's like, oh, why doesn't she call them? Because they don't have a landline. Okay. Why don't we call the neighbors? Well, we don't know our neighbors. Okay. Why don't we call the cops? We did. And it turns out one of the cops was the older brother from the Home Alone movies. You know, the shitty one. Well, he had like eight brothers or something. He had eight brothers, but the oldest brother, Buzz, was the one who was really shitty and mean to Kevin. Okay. And there's this bit where they call in. It's like, oh, we have a report that says a child is home alone at the holidays. And there's this weird bit where this the Buzz is like, ah, we left our our youngest brother home alone two times, and now he prank calls me every year, so I'm not gonna go. And then the person on the squawk box is like you should go. And he's like, (laughs) no. And then he doesn't. And I'm like, okay, here's the thing though. That might explain why he doesn't go once. Mom's going to call again. Mom's going to say, Hey, did you talk to my son? I didn't hear back from you. And then when they say, we thought this was a crank call, she will berate them. And then they'll try again Mm. because it's a child in danger in a rich white neighborhood. There's no way they're not going to check. They're just going to wait till it's someone else's shift. So this is also over. You need to put in a lot of work to make a Home Alone story go. And on top of it all, this whole thing where you, and you've got a good point here. They have humanized the villains to the point where they're more human than the hero. Mm. And if they're not bad people, they don't deserve to be killed. No, which which they are multiple times. Yeah, uh, the the horrors that this kid puts them through, like, like really disgusting things, like smashes them with bottles and sets them yeah. on fire. Yeah, yeah just like, does really horrible. Knocks if, out one of their teeth. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, like the Wet Bandits, who by the end of that movie are literally ready to kill Kevin. Mm. Kevin has carte blanche there. He's saved. He's defending himself. It's a little over the top, obviously, but he's defending himself. Here, we know the kid isn't in danger. So even though the kid thinks he's in danger, all we're seeing is sad, impoverished, miserable people who are desperately trying to protect their kid's future Mm. being tortured for our entertainment. Mm. That is not good story construction. (laughs) That is very, that is extremely misguided. Now, the boy is is, uh, English. Yes. And uh, the, the people breaking into his home are American. Yeah. Maybe it's this is a metaphor for the Revolutionary War. <laughs> Just trying to take what we think is ours. Try to start our own nation here. And the Brits keep... No, that's no, that's thin. a stretch. Yeah. That's pretty thin. Look, I'm, I'm trying to find something in this in this pretty horrendous movie. It's and not I'm a not good finding... film. It's, 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 not, not, it's not funny. 
Yeah, none of the no. humor, none of the humor lands. None I don't of the remember slapstick a single joke lands. working. I really don't. Uh, yeah, none of the yeah. actors really are selling it in any kind of interesting sort of way. And yeah. and you know, Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper are pretty funny. It can be pretty funny. Yeah, but they're, they're not, they can here. be funny uh, people. Like uh, uh, Archie Yates has been funny for crying out loud. These are uh, yeah. also also in this movie. Weirdly enough, Keenan Thompson and double feature with this yeah. and Clifford. Very um, weird. Uh, he's, these, the, he's he's found a niche, I suppose. Yeah. Like the the people involved are capable of better. I'm sure we can all agree on that. Well, the actors involved. Um, the actors involved. I don't, I don't know about the filmmakers. I'm looking at, I'm looking up the director right now. Let's see what they've done. Mm. Uh, let's see here. They did Dirty Grandpa. Uh, what, he, they did a movie called The Exchange, mm. which I didn't see. He, he was uh, he was a writer for um, for uh, Sacha Baron Cohen. He did yeah, like, the like, Allergy the, 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 the Show. The Bora Allergy yeah. Show. Um, okay. Wrote the screenplay to Office Christmas Party and Bridget Jones's Baby. No, it's a been All around, right. been around. Yeah. sort of a varied career. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, this is him just sort of doing bland uh, Disney stuff. It's n- too afraid to put any edge in it. Mm-hmm. Which ironically, not really thoughtful enough to understand some of the irresponsible things it might be saying. Which ironically makes the Disney version kind of the most ghoulish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the people that it hurts are the people who, of all the villains in all the Home Alone movies, least deserve to be hurt. Hmm. Disney's attempt to sort of sanitize Home Alone made it way worse than ever before. <laughs> and I kind of appreciate that irony, yeah, but it doesn't yeah. make it a good film. There needs to be a threat. There needs to be grit. Yeah. And you know, Home Alone is like a super slick, gigantic Hollywood production. There's no grit to something like Home Alone at all. That was yeah. a big criticism of it at the time. Yeah. That it was seemed a little too clean. And that yeah. uh, we were sort of glossing over a lot of the cruelty that uh, Kevin was putting those kids, th- those guys through. Yeah. And it seems so much more nuanced compared to this one. Yeah. Like, it actually seems again, to be addressing more than this film does, and it addresses nothing. Because I think John Hughes, again, I, I, I wish... John Hughes could, had a little bit of a dirty streak to him, knew, like a little did, bit of a, a dark sense did, of humor. He knew he can be dark. He knew that there was a malevolence to this, but he also knew that at the, at the top of it, it had to have some heart. It had to have something in it that made Kevin seem redeemable, and what it was and that one is he's a very little kid. Yeah, he's 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 so young. He actually thinks he wished his family away. Mm. He doesn't think about the actual consequences of it. He learns valuable lessons about you know not judging people, that kind of thing, like sweet things. Um, and again, he put in the absolutely monstrous amount of legwork to make the plot work mm. because it doesn't. But he knew that it was worth getting to the good stuff. Here, there is no good stuff. Mm. Nothing about this is. Oh, my family's home alone. This is great. It it feels like he like burns himself out in an afternoon. Like in one afternoon, he like he breaks some stuff. He has a bunch. There's this weird bit where he dresses up as Scarface and he's got like a giant mound of Skittles on a desk <laughs> instead of the, the comically large pile of heroin from the movie Scarface. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, who is showing this kid Scarface? I'm not one for like the I'm not a stickler for the ratings word or anything like that, but I feel like Scarface is a little intense. The chainsaw scene alone is gonna mess up a kid. Maybe that's why. Did this, does Disney own Scarface now? Is that what happened? Oh Disney God, does, does Disney own Scarface? Disney, yeah, Scarface is a Fox film. I is it? Yeah. I, I oh think, my uh, God. I have to look this up. There I have are a few he- Disney on Scarface. There are a few headlines recently that um, you know, Disney. Nope, Universal. Universal. Oh, Universal. Thank, thank, thank goodness. God. Okay, it's uh, Scar- I don't know Scarface if I want to see. Safe. Oh my God! Can you imagine Muppet Scarface? Yes. <laughs> the 
that would be amazing. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. Um, and then it's just Christopher. It's just uh, it's, it's Robin. Robin. Yeah. It's Robin. It's like hello. <laughs> hi. hi, hi, Uncle Kermit. Can I help out? Yeah. That'd be great. Christ. <laughs> anyway, that's I, it. I would watch the hell out of Muppet Scarface. That's a great idea. Anyway, we got to review some movies. So, uh, if you're new to the show, we uh, review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, most movies are in the C range. Hmm. You know, average, some good, some bad, more for one audience than another, that kind of thing. Uh, if you're above average, we give you a C plus. That's everything from we just genuinely recommend the movie to the greatest movie ever made. Anything in that range. Above average, C plus, and then C minus is below average. That's we do not recommend the movie, or we think it's absolutely terrible. Anything in that range, C minus, below average. Uh, surprise, Home Sweet Home Alone. We're giving a C minus. I think you can speak for both of us. Uh, well, I'd like to speak for myself. I do get a C minus. <laughs> I just want to say it out loud myself. I, I, I predicted please, it, but yeah. Please, please, I'm a critic. Please let me speak for myself. I apologize. Mm. Uh, it's a very badly made film it's it's badly made it's yeah. not well thought out it is it is, is it worse than four uh, that's the thing four, four is a net four, yeah four is also an incompetent yeah. uh and they're they're equally funny which is to say they're not funny at all yeah um i think i got more out of four i think this is the worst one four there's more to talk about and, yeah i think and, french stewart is at least trying yeah, like French this, French Stewart is trying could be the title of his <laughs> his autobiography. Moving on, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog. Uh, let's see, it's yeah. it's it it's not great, but it is pretty harmless. Yeah, I'll give it a C as well. It's it's again, this is a, this is a kids movie for little kids. And on that note, it's it, there's nothing yeah, harmful about it. There's nothing offensive. There's nothing that doesn't that like doesn't work. It just never goes to that next level and becomes really good. Yeah, there's there's yeah. not not enough grit or humanity no. in it, uh, which it could have gone. It definitely could have had. Far, it definitely could have had more to it, but they they set the bar low and they hit it. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, let's see. Uh, passing. Passing is a C plus. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I really really liked the performances. I like the two leads. Um, and it, yeah, it brings up a, a lot of a uh, lot of dark things about uh, you know the racial one of the many dark things about the uh, racial tensions in this country. And mm-hmm. uh, but I like that it sort of puts it in the background to yeah. the characters, and I like the and I like the characters very well. Awesome, mm-hmm. uh, Belfast. Belfast also C plus. Yay! It's very sweet. You make it mm-hmm. rub your eyes and make you cry a little bit about this sweet little boy who's surviving of some pretty tough stuff but yeah. uh, in a, in a way that feels like it's good from a perspective of a little yeah. kid and not you know harrowing and in yeah. a, a melodramatic sort of it's way a good week for black and white period pieces yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, finally Netflix's red notice uh, uh, I I don't like I, this movie I give I, it a C minus I barely red noticed it uh, <laughs> I did a thing uh, Netflix claims this was like their most watched movie ever okay. You know, I could claim that too. Uh, you know, like when you a when you don't show us the the stats, that's easy to do. Uh, B, you know, in Netflix, how like if you don't change your settings, sometimes you just start showing stuff. But as soon as you turn on the app, mm. and you know how Netflix, you actually Netflix. say people watch stuff even if they only watched a couple minutes of it. If they, this tur- is one I, of those. I, I th- think. I think if if somebody watched it for like two minutes. Netflix like it, considers it that watch. considers a, f- a full watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think look, they should they should look that up. Like, we don't have the details yeah. on that, but that's like they they do not consider a whole watch to be a watch. It's actually the bar is yeah. very very low for them. 
Uh, I would love to I'm see. There would there needs to be some sort of average as to like what is the average time somebody watched this movie. Yeah, that I would yeah. be interested in because that's way more telling. I feel mm. because like if, if, it, because if, 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 if this has like a, look, you know, billions of views, but the average length of viewing is like fifteen minutes, yeah, then because look, that's a failure. This this is how this is how I think Netflix has made some really good movies. Oh, okay? definitely. And this is this is not one of them. This is a C minus. But like this, Netflix made some very very good. And they put out The Irishman. They put out Roma. Mm. They put out uh, uh, mm. even very good entertaining films like Army of Thieves. Nicely done. Um. They, uh, uh, it's easier to, as soon as you turn on your TV or your laptop or your tablet or wherever you got, and you put out and you open up Netflix and you just see, oh, there's a new thing with the, these three actors I like. Click. Mm. That's easy. Yeah. It's harder to, it's like, I suspect though that if you had to go through the trouble of looking at the trailer to see if this looked good or not. Buying tickets, going across town, getting parking. I don't think your standard would be quite as low. <laughs> I think you would be like, this had better be worth the, the... I mean, it's not a monumental amount of effort, but I had to spend more money on this. I had to go out of my way to see this movie. My standard would be a little bit higher. And I think when you leave this... I think it's one thing to say like, ah, it's a stupid movie and I didn't hate watching it. I'll let it... I'll give it a pass. Mm. Because you clicked on it on Netflix. But I think when you actually have to go to a theater, I think standards end up feeling a little higher because you put in a little extra effort. Uh-huh. And I don't think if this was a theatrical release, this would be successful. No. no. At all. So that's me. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everyone loves this movie but us. And it's going to win every Academy Award. And it's going to be the next All About Eve. Or at well, the very least, the, the next Titanic or here, whatever. Here, I don't know. Here's the thing. I've seen All About Eve. Oh, yeah. I like All About Eve. That's a good movie. You know what's not a good movie? <laughs> is Red Notice. That's true. There's no wit, charm, or no. cleverness uh, at all mm. to the screenplay. It's, no, it's, it's, made, it's made out of recycled parts, uh, and there's mm. no charm from leads who I know can be charming. Mm-hmm. This is the laziest form of action caper filmmaking, where it is relying on cliches and, uh, and star power yeah. to get it across. Star power gets a click. And that's if that's all you're interested in mm-hmm. as a business, then you did your job yeah. as an audience member. I want a good film and I didn't yeah. get one. So this is a big old, big old goose egg. This is a C minus. All right. Well, anyway, we'll be back next week uh, with reviews of films like Ghostbusters Afterlife oh, golly, and Tick, it? Tick, Boom. All right. Yeah. And others as well. No doubt. Hmm. Uh, so um, there's uh, I'm going to be seeing a, a Romanian film with a very interesting title as well. What's, what's the it's title? called Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. Nice. That's, that's the title of the movie, and, I, and, I, and I can't wait to see it. So that's, yeah, that's we'll, a we'll title. Ta- we'll, that's we'll, a title. We'll be talking about Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn next week as well. Nice. Um, so anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we were very very grateful to have you here. Very special thank you to all of our patrons hmm. over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Without you, our show would not exist. So thank you for joining us. You mean the world to us. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. If you would like to join up, our, our Patreon is again, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive shows there, including weekly shows dedicated to Batman and Star Trek. We do uh, monthly commentary tracks. We do a uh, podcast dedicated to every film ever nominated for best picture. Uh, we also have an extensive backlog of exclusive podcast episodes, including mm-hmm. commentary tracks Star Trek, Batman, Firefly, reviews of old TV movies that are really, really weird. Those are all currently available. 
just searchable. You sign up on the Patreon, depending on the tier, you get a lot of them. Uh, so all that's there. Mm. We also are on, are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And if you would like to talk about anything we discussed on this episode or anything at all, really, uh, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email and answer your questions or critiques or concerns on an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. If you would prefer to send us something physically, like a letter or a postcard, or I don't know. <laughs> Why are you saying it in a fancy voice? I now? don't know. I'm, I'm feeling fancy. Send if you a, want to send us send some us more artisanal cheeses. I don't know. Whatever you whatever you want. Basically, we have a, we have a PO box. So, yeah. So you can send us a physical piece of letters. Yeah. Um, just a piece of a letter. Uh, <laughs> critically Ooh, claimed. Half an a. Uh, critically claimed network PO box six four one five six five Los Angeles California nine double zero six four. And I mentioned it earlier, but we do have a soap store. Myself and my partner M Lapis da Silva. Uh, that is Salt Cat Soap. You can find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap. You will find links to our, our, our Etsy store. You can also look for it there. We make and design soap. A variety of uh, scents, presentations. We have gift sets for the holidays. Uh, we have glow-in-the-dark ghost soaps. We still have some of those available. Um... And uh, thank you to everybody who has already ordered. It means the world to us, and we're very, very grateful to you. Um, and I think that's it. That's it. Awesome. So uh, thank you, everybody, once again. Have a great week. We'll see you around. We have a lot more shows coming up on the network. Uh, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>